Hello everyone, uh, it's uh, Tuesday evening, just got done with a great dinner and going to share some word with you. Today we're going to look into this concept that I mentioned in my last podcast of what does for God so love the world really mean? I want to welcome all of my podcasters and family fellowship chapel friends Facebook into the study tonight and uh, want you to know of course that you can always contact me at springston56 at gmail.com mikespringstonministries.com ffcma.org or through Family Fellowship Chapel's direct messaging. So let's have a word of prayer and then we will get right on with what we're going to talk about tonight under the topic of what does for God's so love the world really mean. Father, we thank you for the Word of God. Open our eyes that we can see it, our ears that we can hear, and our heart that we can understand what the Word of God is saying to us. And then, Father, may we apply it to our lives so that we can be changed into the image of your dear Son. Jesus, speak to us tonight. Write directly through the Holy Spirit. Show us what we need to know, do, understand, and demonstrate. We'll receive it and give it to your people. It'll change us. We ask it all in the lovely name of Jesus Christ, who is our High Priest, our Lord, and our Man, and the Godhead. Amen. Uh, on an earlier podcast, I spoke uh, for a few minutes on the idea of uh, John 3.16, uh, but of course not in any detail. So I wanted to come back and speak on that and provide some detail to the real meaning or the meaning of what does God so love the world mean. The reason for this is that uh, it appears that we've mischaracterized the concept of the love of God as being provided to the world on a couple of different levels. So I want to teach you on John 3, beginning with verse 15, and then going through the three verses 15 through 18, and then finishing it with what was said at the end of, the, of that chapter. And I think you'll have a better appreciation for what the Scripture actually means. What are we going to find here? Well, it may shock you uh, because we're going to uncover maybe something that could be an old wound that because you did not understand the Word of God has been left to fester uh, precisely because of misuse of Scripture. Someone would say, Pastor, why would you uh, teach against or what appears to be against mainstream doctrine and mainstream teaching um, and try to, to show truth against a very raging tide of sentiment that believes in an extremely diametrically opposed version well, friend, my charge concerning ministry is to preach the truth of the Word of God. That's all I will do. That's all I'll attempt to do because of one reason and one reason only. Your soul and my soul is connected to our everlasting life. And the understanding of truth is the thing that uh, causes us to be in a position where we have to have truth. Not an intellectual version, not a doctrinal version, not a popular version, but truth. 
Now, it would require a whole, whole lot less effort for me just to say what everyone else is saying and preach what everyone else is preaching and take it off the computer and preach and teach someone else's messages and put my doodads to it. That would be much easier. But then I would not be a true servant in my mind for my ministry of the Master. Now the apostles nor Paul did that. They all, if you will, swam upstream against the religious ideologies of their day. The outcome of their doing what they did is this glorious church that identifies with Jesus Christ as its head. As we know, the phrase, for God so loved the world, has been used specifically to say that God's love for mankind is just so vast. And because of that love that comes from God to the general world, one can rest in that fact, the fact that God loves you. He loves you while you're sinning. He loves you while you destroy your life with selfishness. He loves you while you satisfy yourself through the works of the flesh. There's no place that you can go that He doesn't love you. He loves you so deeply that the sacrifice that was given for you is all you really need because it will cover you when judgment time comes. Now this is the popular description of the idea of John 3.16. This phrase is a major part of those that operate in the once saved, always saved doctrine because it places all of the requirements to be saved on what the sacrifice did. And the love of God then uses the sacrifice as the substitute that overrides the responsibility for your sin. So let's unpack Scripture and try to understand the truth for the well-being and benefit of the body of Christ. John 3.15-21, through 21, look at here. That whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The first principle I want you to see is, is the principle of the sacrifice. The second principle is I want you to see that believing in the sacrifice is the means to inherit eternal life. The third principle is because of the sacrifice and believing in him, then there is the promise of eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Now first of all I want to tell you, don't ever separate the love of God from the sacrifice. The first thing we must do is identify who the sacrifice is and how precisely the sacrifice operated. First of all, He was grace. Grace was, we know that by John 1, 14 and 1, 17. Grace was the part of him that was activated by the shedding of his blood. When activated, grace could be applied to the spiritual needs of any man at any time. That application done by believing would produce everlasting life. So the sacrifice produced a form of love to man that we know of as grace. The sacrifice was the one who both shed the blood and was grace. So in essence, the sacrifice was expressing the love of God to the world through the shed blood 
of that sacrifice who had in his sacrifice the application of grace. So to say that God loved the world in that he produced a sacrifice who was full of grace, well, that's true. But we can never sacrifice, separate the love for the sacrifice and the operation of grace as it relates to the world as being greater than the sacrifice. Then there was the justice side. This is the side nobody comes to. The Bible said he was full of grace and truth. So when God so loved the world, there were things happening that were produced by the sacrifice, whom we said the first principle was the sacrifice, the second principle was uh, believing in the sacrifice, and the third principle was that by believing we had everlasting life. Those are the first three principles of John 3.15. In John 3.16 now, he says, For God so loved the world. Well, in that love, God was releasing three things. He was releasing the blood, the shed blood of Jesus Christ, he was releasing grace, and he was releasing truth. In him was all of that. The blood flowed, grace came from the blood, and truth. Now, uh, truth is the divine side, the justice side of the sacrifice. And we know that to be truth, because when we look it up in the Greek, it's the reality of the divine side. Now, the sacrifice then was the only begotten Son of God, the only one, the only one of its kind. And it came from that side of Him, the truth side of Him. Here, God was forced by His divine side to operate in total and complete justice with respect to who the sacrifice was and concerning what the sacrifice had offered to mankind, as I said. The sacrifice in verse 15 offered three things. He offered the sacrifice, belief in the sacrifice, and everlasting life by the sacrifice. And then as John 3.16 comes around, we see this concept of for God so loved the world, and here's what he gave to the world. He gave his only begotten son. From the sacrifice came blood, grace, and truth. Now we're going to see how this all plays together. So, uh, God was forced by the divine side to operate in total and complete justice with respect to who the sacrifice was and concerning what the sacrifice had offered to mankind. So the love of God to the world uh, through the sacrifice had offered these three distinct things and in fact two that came into the world as the change agents, the blood, grace, and truth. He that receiveth his testimony. Now that's a scripture that comes to us later in um, this chapter. I, I think it's down around verse 30, 31, 32. He that receiveth his testimony has set to his seal that God is true. Now, notice what John is saying here. The one who receives this testimony of the love of God, identified in the blood, grace, and truth, that one who receives that testimony has set a seal on himself that God is true. 
Now this, this does not tell us that God loved the world more than the work of the sacrifice. Actually, it tells us that God loved the testimony of the one who was sacrificed. And that testimony when received, when received, said that God is true. Now let's find out what the testimony was. I've already told you. It was grace and truth that came through the blood. Grace and, grace and truth was spoken that God is saving by grace and he set a seal upon grace. Now watch this. By expressing divine truth upon the work of the sacrifice. Before we leave this, we must address the concept of how the seal is set that God is true. In John 6, 27, Labor not for the meat which perisheth, but for the meat which endureth unto everlasting life, which the Son of Man shall give unto you. For him hath God the Father sealed. What did he seal him with? Grace and truth. 2 Timothy 2.19 Nevertheless the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, that God knoweth them that are his, and let everyone that nameth the name of Christ depart from iniquity or in-depth wickedness. This refers to the seal that comes from the correct application of both grace and the corresponding response of applied justice. Now that applied justice is done in the heavenly economy of God. We see it right here. He said, the Lord knoweth them that are his. Man is assured by this sealing that they're operating without in-depth wickedness and without lawlessness. This seal represents the foundation upon which John 3.16 is based and upon how this love that was defined as being to the world, came to them through the sacrifice of the Son. Now there is another ceiling that we also misrepresent in Scripture, and it's found in Ephesians 1, 12-14. Now watch the wording Paul uses. That we should be to the praise of His glory who first trusted in Christ, in whom ye also after that ye heard the word of truth. Huh. Heard the word of the divine side of God. The gospel of your salvation. How did it happen? By grace. In whom also, after that ye believed, were now sealed. But watch who is sealing you here. With the Holy Spirit of promise which is the earnest of our inheritance until the, uh, the redemption of the purchased possession unto the praise of his glory. This scripture introduces a completely new seal. Notice that those who trusted heard the word concerning truth. We know that's the divine side of God that renders justice. That was embraced when they began the pursuit of salvation. Their belief was the operation of the application of grace. Then a second seal occurred. It was the seal of the promise of the Father. That sealing was accomplished by the Holy Spirit. We identify that action as being completed in Acts chapter 2. This sealing provided for us the down payment of our inheritance. In other words, it opened the door of our interaction with Jesus Christ, who is our mediator of the new covenant, the interaction with the Holy Spirit through the gifts of the Spirit, the interaction with Jesus as the man in the Godhead bodily, who speaks to us and through us by the Holy Spirit, and 
is the process of salvation. It comes to us in the process of salvation. This seal is concerning our spiritual interaction with the current world until we're brought to be with him where he is. We know that's so because 1 John 4, 17 said, Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment because as he is, so are we in this world. Now we go down to verse 33. I just told you about verse 32, the sealing in verse 32 of John 16. For he whom God hath sent speaketh the words of God. For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. Notice this is the sacrifice that is speaking because he is the one sent to do so. He spoke the words of God. The words of God spoken by the sacrifice is sent for you to believe upon and know God. What did he speak? It's very clear. He spoke what he was. He was grace and truth. By one we're saved and accepted, and by the other we received the justice and the fairness of God. He was full of the Spirit, so he knew the words, ways, and works of God. What were they to the world? They were the expression of love to the world that was expressed in who he was and what he was sent to speak, which is very simple. It's grace and truth. Verse 35, the Father loveth the Son and hath given all things into his hand. The Father loves the Son. The Son is the sacrifice. Therefore, we cannot say that he loved the world more than the Son or that that God's love was strictly commended uh, uh, in, in John 3.16, as it came to the world and the sacrifice was to cover everything. No, no. The sacrifice was to release to us grace and truth. We could say His love to the world was spoken to us by the sacrifice. We could say that through that love of the sacrifice, God provided a path that would bring the world into His love. The Father gave everything to the sacrifice. The world only received what the sacrifice afforded them. What was it that the world received? Grace and truth. He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life, verse 36. And he that believeth not the Son shall not see life, uh uh-uh, but the wrath of God abideth upon him. Now we see again that it was the sacrifice that was to be the one who was to change the world. He that believes on the sacrifice has everlasting life. What's that involve? The one who believes comes into the love of God based upon who the sacrifice was and what the sacrifice did. They came in based upon what he offered as a sacrifice, grace and truth. Now the next phrase defines who was in fact the object of the love of God because we read that believing on the Son of God gave them Everlasting life. Effectively applied grace brought the administration of justice into the divine realm. Why we would have ever believed that a most detailed God would reveal grace and have absolutely nothing in the spiritual economy to weigh the operation of grace is mind-boggling to me. Certainly, He would have a means to determine whether grace had completed its role. And in fact, he does. And it's called truth. It's the mechanism of divine justice. 
We left it completely out of the equation. Why did we do it? Because grace was a much easier existence and a much easier way to view God. Grace was an easy way to live because we didn't have to do anything. We could tell the world, God did it all for you. You just go ahead and live. You can sin. You can satisfy your flesh. You can be selfish. And don't worry about it. He's done it all for you. It's not true. That's not true. God loved the world, gave grace and truth to it, but He loved the sacrifice more. And the sacrifice is speaking to you today and saying, I've given my blood and it is revealed and released to you grace and truth. Now look what happens to those who believe not. If we read that as it is taught, then believing or not would have absolutely no impact on the love of God. Why? Because the sacrifice would have accomplished it all and your believing would play no role in the distribution of His love. You would be saved because He loved you more than He loved the sacrifice and the words the sacrifice spoke. The application of grace would have been the end of it all. And it would be the end all be all of what the sacrifice provided, but it is not. The love portion came through the sacrifice via both grace and truth. If we refuse grace, then we're lost without the love offering of God. If we believe and receive grace, then truth will be the judge of what and if you have believed and applied grace to your life, and it will show through truth the divine side of God. If your life reflects the actual application of the grace, and it interacts with your belief system, and you go from the works of the flesh to the fruit of the Spirit. If you don't believe the Son, you won't see life, but the wrath of God abideth in him. The one who does not believe on the sacrifice won't see life because of God's love for the sacrifice. That can never be separated from the sacrifice, the love of God. If grace is not applied correctly, then truth rejects what has been attempted to be applied. So as we tell people, Jesus did it all, uh, faith alone by Christ alone, uh, my friend, uh, that's a misapplication of what God was trying to do for you in love. Uh, if grace is not applied correctly, then truth will reject what has been attempted to be applied. If the complete order concerning grace and truth are not believed and received, then that one cannot abide in everlasting life. Since this is true, we must identify the facts of Scripture. And that is that the wrath of God abideth on those who do not use the sacrifice as it was intended. They have become the children of wrath. Think on this now. How could John 3.16 speak what they say it does, and then John 3.36 call those same people the children of wrath? Here's the reason why. Because on the one hand, he offered grace, and on the other hand, he instituted truth. So one can be both loved and rejected because of these two terms. Now, verse 17 of John 3.16, For God sent not His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. God never intended for man to be condemned, but by the love release of grace and truth that was offered in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, there was a giving 
that could take man out of condemnation provided he would believe in it and that grace would be applied and the truth, the justice of God would say, yes, what grace was sent to do, yes, it did it. The idea was that in producing his love, who was the sacrifice, his only begotten son, or his one and only son, that man would see what God had offered and believe on what the offering had done, thereby being saved by the offering of grace and truth. Verse 18, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. Well, then along comes verse 18. It agrees with Scripture we've already identified. We see the freedom from condemnation that believing brings. That means that they have no pronunciation of guilt against them. Now, wait a minute. Grace is not the pronunciation of freedom. Grace is the application of the blood. The pronunciation of freedom that eliminates condemnation comes from when truth, the justice and fairness of God, says, yes, grace, in fact, has done its work. Grace, in fact, has shown its favor and created its influence. Truth says, yes, I got it. He's, he's done it. The sacrifice offered grace. What's the reason for freedom? Sacrifice offered grace. Now right here, once the sacrifice has brought the freedom from guilt, then because of the sacrifice, one enters into the love of God. He has come through the two measures that brings him into the love of God where he is called a child of God. He's no longer the child of wrath. How does that work? Once the pronunciation of being guiltless is accomplished by believing on the work of the sacrifice, the one comes into the love of God because of the sacrifice and through the sacrifice of which came the blood, grace, and truth. Truth registers in the courtyard of heaven that grace in fact has sealed the believer and justice has prevailed. But he that believeth not is condemned already because he had not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. Now read this clearly. The unbeliever is condemned. He's pronounced guilty already. Why? Because truth says so. The fairness and justice of God says so. The truth and justice of God says grace has not been applied. So you're condemned. In the court of heaven, the justice of heaven condemns you. Now, if God's love was extended to the world in greater volume than to the sacrifice, how could that be? Because truth would have to, have to look at your sin and say, I justify that. But he can't. Because grace should have operated on you, and grace should have brought you into the plan of salvation, forgiven you and healed you, caused you to die to your flesh, caused you to deposit your sin nature and be resurrected in the righteousness of God. And truth is saying, yes, 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 that's it. That I justify that. I accept that, you see. Truth, my friend. The sacrifice declared the application of grace to accomplish the spiritual need that was required to reconnect man with God 
and truth on the other hand define what grace had or had not done. He that believes not is condemned by God for not receiving grace and applying it to his life so that the divine side of God could say yes and amen. He loved them, but he didn't love them as we define or described. He loved them by the operation of producing a sacrifice full of grace and truth. He didn't love them in their sin. The angels asked in Hebrews 1 and said, What is man that thou art mindful of him? So he provided a path of grace and truth from his love for them because that's his character. But he never did love them more than the sacrifice. Why? Because the sacrifice was the means from which his love to the world was to be presented. He was the one loved by the Father. He was the one who was and came as grace and truth. Then verse 19. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. What was the invasion of darkness? It was the invasion of sin in the inner man. That sin always disconnects man from God. Light came into the world. What was that light? It was the one who came as grace and truth. Men loved darkness over light. Now we see where the love life of man was placed. They loved darkness rather than light. They still do. Their deeds were evil. What was the means provided for light to come into their inner man and destroy darkness? It was the path of love produced by the sacrifice. Of course, that was grace and truth. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light, lest his deeds should be made manifest, or be reproved rather. Evil hates light because light is truth. Darkness will remain distant from light because light exposes truth. If we operate under the premise that the love of God to the world is the essence of John 3.16, men are never bought, brought to the complete work of the sacrifice. They're told love covers them and not the work of the sacrifice. God never intended for His love to be construed that way. But we mishandled Scripture and it has produced a devastating effect upon people. How do we do it? We didn't couple the concept of grace with the impact of truth. Man wants the love of God with respect to grace, but we do not desire the love of God with respect to this divine justice. Truth exposes how God legitimately views what is, what has, and what was happening in your heart. If we never confronted that, what's in our heart, then we never move forward. And we become a most unsuspecting and totally unaware of truth. Therefore, we have never interacted with the divine side of the justice of God. Grace will act upon you. Grace will change your life. The plan of salvation will transform your life. Truth will be the umpire. Truth will be the element and agent of the justice of God to say whether grace is accomplishing in you what God set it forth to do. That divine justice was every bit as deeply offered in the giving of Jesus Christ 
as the uh, for the forgiveness of our sins and for the avenue to everlasting life as the application of grace. But he that doeth truth cometh to the life. He that doeth truth. He that doeth truth. Did you hear that? Cometh to the light that his deeds may be made manifest that they are wrought in God. Here it is, my friends, truth in real and divine sense that is the result of applied grace comes to light. The truth, not grace, is the reason man finds the compass concerning his deeds. This is critical truth. That, that truth is the measurement that defines whether a deed is actually engaged with in the economy of God. This is not a work of grace altogether, but a work combined with the divine reality of truth. So we finally come to the understanding of what exactly for God so loved the world means. We see how He could both love and condemn the world at the same time. His love was extended to the world through the twofold work of the sacrifice of whom He loved. The love of God to the world was extended by the revelation of Jesus Christ as grace and truth. Man could not have one without the other, and if he tried to, he really had neither. We've been told we could have grace, and that grace was the answer to cover our relationship with God. We've been told that this was the expression of God's love to us. And on the one hand, that is true, but it does not define the complete nature of how God was processing the sacrifice to mankind. If we see it through that lens, then we have a faulty view of the action of God with respect to how the sacrifice was to operate towards mankind. This faulty view leave man, leaves man without the benefit of the sacrifice because grace and truth are not to be separated. Neither is the love of God to be separated from the sacrifice. Father, I praise you today for the word of God. Open our eyes that we can see and our ears that we can hear. Bring us into truth so we understand that if we are just living in grace that is not weighed by the divine justice of truth, then it's highly probable that the doctrinal teaching of which we have been given by grace is not reaping for us the benefit that we have been told. Because unless grace and truth can come together and they can kiss and be married and the divine justice that you provide in heaven can say grace has done its work, then the sacrifice has not accomplished what it is we need, we must have it do. We must find truth. Father, I pray that you'll let us see it in Jesus' mighty and wonderful name. Well, may God bless you, my Facebook friends. Until we have the opportunity to speak again, Wednesday night Bible study, you don't want to miss it. God bless you. Find Jesus as Lord, my friends. There you'll find Him as the mediator of the new covenant. Find Him as the man in the Godhead bodily, and there He will show you great and mighty things that you know not. God bless you until we speak again.